Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. And I'm proud to say that we're introducing Dual Diagnosis Corner again, and we're joined once again by Dan Fan. Dan, welcome again to, to Dual Diagnosis Corner, uh, and it's great to have your expertise here. And I guess we're uh, following on from our earlier episode uh, where we talked a bit about trauma and got our definitions um, across. But there was one thing that you said that really interested me, and it was about how sometimes when we take a trauma history or we probe a patient too hard, we can sometimes trigger them and sometimes create a a bigger problem for the patient and and re-traumatize them. What's your approach to to taking a trauma history or how do you do this in a sensitive manner and check in with the patient? Yeah, so I'll speak from my own personal experience. I guess there's nothing too magical about it. It's really about having empathy and sensitivity to the patient in front of you. Um, How I will often approach, and I also give the caveat that my role, I work in a tertiary service with a trauma focus. So I think taking a step back, context is important. What are you trying to achieve when you're taking this history? Is it to lead to further treatment? Is it to lead to referrals? Or are you doing it out of your own curiosity? So the last part would be very problematic because you're hopefully doing something with the idea that you're going to help the patient in some ways. Um, but like I said, it's not rocket science. Empath- empathy, sensitivity, and also being collaborative in your approach is probably the way to go when it comes to taking these kind of histories. Really for sort of flagging your intentions and why, why you're taking this history and why it's important you get certain aspects, but also giving a patient an out and saying, look, I'd like to ask you about those kind of things. We don't have to go into detail if you don't want to. You can take it also in the course of delivering or giving a history, you might feel upset or you might feel strong emotions coming up. Let us know. We can always take a break and you can always pause or we can just sort of take a step back. Having that sort of understanding and just so you can set that sort of position of safety around the interview and that really the client has or the patient has that sort of the power to lead where they want to go really sort of sets that sort of feel. And then just being clear about why, what you're trying to gain from it. So if it's about assessment, just going through the criteria of PTSD, you don't have to get the nitty-gritty of, you know, what happened minute to minute to minute. Again, are you doing this for a clinical assessment or are you being voyeuristic in some ways? Sometimes it does help to have the narrative. It does help. Um, but if I, for example, in my role, and sometimes when I'm trying to make a diagnosis of PTSD, I don't need to know everything about it. I just need to know if it meets the criteria of PTSD enough for me to put on to ongoing treatment. And often with the narrative and the story, patients unravel that over many weeks and weeks and weeks of sessions. They're not going to have to unpack it all for you in 40 minutes. I think as clinicians, we often get into this mindset from training, like, you know, a good clinician can get a good detailed history all in one go, but that's not in the patient's interest. So that begs the question then, what are the symptoms of PTSD? What are the diagnostic criteria even? Yep. So I'll in this sort of question, I'll fall back to the DSM. I don't often like doing that because it can be quite checklist, but for our purposes, I think it's also good to have a sort of framework to understanding PTSD. And when you're talking about PTSD, particularly when looking at the DSM framework, it really covers four different domains. So to make a diagnosis of PTSD, you need to cover four different symptoms. So well, before that, you need to actually have a trauma occur to you. Mm. We talked about the definition of trauma, a sort of life-threatening event, threatening towards life or limb. 
And then having, it's a, it's a chronic disorder. So it has to be present for at least a couple of months. Um, if it's shorter than a few months, then it's just an acute stress disorder by definition. If it's longer than a couple of months, then it's a PTSD, it's the post-traumatic stress disorder. And really when I'm going through an assessment, I'm looking for four domains. That's the intrusions, the avoidance symptoms, the alteration, or negative alterations in cognition and mood, and alterations in reactivity and arousal. What does that mean in English? Okay, <laughs> okay. so intrusions are the what we call re-experiencing phenomena. So in even plainer English, these are nightmares and flashbacks. So nightmares are the dreams, negative dreams that can be quite disturbing for patients' sleep. The flashbacks often will tell us patients, you know, it's actually a re-experiencing of the actual event, almost like you are there again in the event. So patients may get traumatized, so sorry, get triggered by a certain stimuli and then feel like they're re-experiencing in terms of the sights, the sounds, the visual sort of cues. That's what we call the intrusion uh, symptoms. The avoidance symptoms comes from trying to avoid all the negative sequelae of PTSD, so that the fear of the re-experiencing and also the mood and the triggering of the irritability and all that. So there's just, an avoidance can be many things. It could be avoiding a certain spot because that's the spot that where the trauma happened. If I was involved in the floods, I really want to go remove myself from any sort of sounds of rain or if it's raining, I really want to block it out. Or if I was in a bushfire, maybe I don't go anywhere near a fire, for example. But we're also interesting for our sort of context in addictions. Sometimes the actual substance use is the avoidance. So I drink or I numb myself so I don't have to feel the pain of the trauma, and that can be construed as another avoidance. Um, and the last two domains are the alterations in cognition and mood and also reactivity and arousal. So reactivity and arousal, often we might call that the hyperstartle response. These are the patients who they come into the room, they're looking at all the exits, and their slight noise will set them off. They're almost like on a hair trigger, they're, that sort of fight-flight response. And again, think about the idea of trauma, it's primed you to feel like your life is always going to be in danger. You need to be on guard. So these patients are always on guard. And the metaphor I often reuse that the idea of like a watch coil spring, constantly coiled and under tension, ready to sort of burst any notice, ready to sort of fight or flight. So the sorry. yeah, I, I have a mnemonic okay. uh, that I'd like to have your feedback on. So um, it's harm, H A R, and instead of M for mother, it's actually N for negative cognitions. So it's harm. So hyperarousal, uh, avoidance, re-experiencing, which I think is my word for the intrusions. And then uh, the, the, the negative cognition, which I... Yeah, so does that mnemonic work for you? And the second question is, um, you know, the thousand-yard stare. How does, what's the thousand-yard stare and how does that fit into this uh, presentation? So go through. So Han, first the H was the hyperarousal, hyperarousal avoidance, yes. re-experiencing, yep. and negativity, instead of M. So it's harm, i.e. the trauma, but instead of M, it's M. I can't think of any other way of making a a quick mnemonic device for that. <laughs> you guys have got something better. <laughs> no, that works for me. And I guess the the value of a mnemonics is if it, you can remember it, then yeah. that's that's great. Because um, also the last part I didn't cover was the alterations in the mood and cognition. So. Yeah. These patients will often feel dysphoric, distressed, they can be irritable, um, and their cognitions are, can be quite negative cognitions. So feeling like the world is in an unsafe place is a very key cognition, or I, I did something to deserve 
this trauma. It's a key message I often find in particularly patient, female patients or patients who've gone through sexual abuse in the past. There's this cognition that I did something to deserve that or I did something to bring it on in some ways. And that's obviously a very negative, untrue cognition that you want to tease out in, in psychology. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, Dan, we've, we've spent, like, I guess the better part of an episode and, and this episode as well talking about how to be aware of trauma, get a talk to the patient, take a history, and I guess get an assessment and the diagnostic criteria of, of trauma and PTSD, which begs the question, now that we've got all this information, what, what do we do with it or what can we do with it? How, how, how can we help our patients manage this trauma? What, what's your approach uh, when, when you've made these diagnoses? Yeah, so one of the good things about PTSD is that we do have established ways of addressing and approaching and trying to treat trauma, and there's a lot of good evidence around that. Um, I would argue that the key thing for trauma is addressing the actual trauma, and psychological approaches are very much key here. And you can divide psychological approaches up into... Uh, non-trauma-focused treatments and trauma-focused treatments. I don't discount the value of pharmacologic, pharmacological approaches as well, So, but they're very much symptomatic sort of management. So you can use antidepressants, you can use like very, very judiciously antipsychotics and sedatives for acute distress, but mainly it's the antidepressant side of things. But that's not going to be the thing that fixes or addresses the actual trauma. It may help and is great in tandem to help stabilise and enhance your psychology, but it's really the addressing and the working on the cognitions and the experiences that I think that's where the money is. So I talked before about trauma-informed care. So that's very different from the, what we call the trauma-focused care. So trauma-focused really is about focusing on, in on the memory of the traumatic event and its meaning and its effect on the person. The other thing I mentioned before that was the non-trauma-focused treatments. So these don't so much focus on the past aspects, but they may focus on the here and now of the effects. So, And then it, these are things you can apply for many things outside of PTSD. So stress management, supportive, non-directive therapy, um, relaxation techniques, helping people to develop ways of better coping with stress in the here and now. The advantage of that is that you don't need your patients to have to go back or reprocess the trauma. So it's very low impact in some ways. And... The evidence for it for treating PTSD is very limited, but it has its uses in your toolbox if you're meeting someone on the very start of their journey. You really, you know, facing the trauma is not an easy thing. And trauma-focused treatments have high attrition rates because it can be quite confronting. So you really want your patients to be as equipped and as prepared as possible before they launch into it. So often I might say to a patient, look, I think you need to work on the basic coping strategy before we go into that because I'm worried that if you go into it, you may destabilise. Um, so you might work on that first, but then if things are ready, the ground is laid, you have your support structures in place, that's when you might go into trauma-focused treatment. And with regards to medication management for, for, trauma, uh, for trauma and PTSD, I think we've all seen the gamut. We've seen patients who've been placed on benzodiazepines to kind of manage a lot of that hyperarousal, that hypervigilance, and unfortunately stay on benzodiazepines for, for a while and, and deal with, 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 with that. Are there any go-to medications that you find effective to, to complement the psychological therapies or the psychotherapies you mentioned? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think it comes back to what I was saying before, that really it's symptomatic management when it comes to medications. So antidepressants are great for um, the mood and anxiety symptoms, but not, they're not the all and end all. And unfortunately, they are much more long-term effects. 
the benzos and to a benzodiazepines and to another extent antipsychotics with sedative effects. They do have their role. So if someone's in acute distress and they're at risk and they're really heightened, you're not going to get very far with therapy. So they do have their role, but their role long-term is very, very limited. And particularly, again, given the context of this podcast, I advocate that if clinicians are using it, they're very judicious. It's very limited quantities and limited duration. PTSD out of interest used to be under the chapter of anxiety disorders in, in DSM. They've now in the latest DSM-5, become their own trauma chapter, just to, ref- just to reflect on how major and prominent it is. But I mentioned that because, as with anxiety disorders, benzos are helpful for the acute, but they're not great for the long term. They can actually make it worse. Again, you're really if you're using these kind of sedatives, you're really buying into that avoidance cycle. The more you avoid something, the more fear and uh, apprehension it causes. So if I take a benzo, I've staved off the fear and the trauma for a little bit, but I haven't addressed the underlying trauma. And when it comes back, it comes back meaner and harder in some ways. And that's how, what I tell patients. It's like having a gaping wound in your leg and then whacking a Band-Aid on it. You've covered a little bit, but you haven't really stopped it from getting septic, have you? Hmm. I'd like to explore this issue that, that actually substance use can be regarded as a manifestation of avoidance of trauma. I mean, is that is that the gateway to substance use disorders that is associated with trauma or is, is, is there another gateway? What do you reckon? It's, I think you touched on the idea of what's the common factors for PTSD and substance use, or indeed PTSD, oh, sorry, substance use in any mental health disorder. It's always chicken and egg, and I think it's, it's complicated because it can be a one-way or a two-way street depending on the situation. So the scenario you, you pose, Fogel, the idea um, – People often will self-medicate for PTSD. It's better to feel sometimes intoxicated when you can't get adequate treatment. Um, that's often a problem. Um, so it's better to feel intoxicated and blotted on opioids than to feel that really intense psychic pain or distress mm-hmm. and fear. And then other model you might use is that's sort of a common factor. So often if you're using substances, are you more likely to be putting yourself in situations that might cause trauma, like criminal activity or um, abusive or, or exploitative relationships. So that might put you in, predispose you to greater degrees of trauma as well. Mm. It gets really complicated in that. Mm. One, one thing I didn't mention also was to expand the idea of trauma-focused treatments. Um, there are a number of different kinds. So people may hear of things like uh, EMDR, which is the eye movement desensitization retraining of reprocessing. Um, prolonged exposure um, or trauma-focused CBT or cognitive behavioural treatment. There's a whole range of it. They all have good evidence. And really, there's just different flavours and different approaches of how you address the actual trauma and try to just reduce the, the level of fear and anxiety it causes in someone's life. And Dan, I guess this has been a, a great episode and you've told us a lot, but we couldn't let you leave the episode without without uh, hitting one of, one of the topical things. And Everyone seems to be inter- interested in psychedelics these days and also the role, I guess, of MDMA in, in, in um, trauma and PTSD, especially in veterans. There's been a bit of research into that. What's, what's your view on, on this kind of – it's not really emerging. It's been around for a while, but uh, it, it is something that is somewhat topical these days. Do you have any thoughts? Ah, you're throwing me to the wall. Let's see. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a, it's a great topic. Um, and it's exciting in a way because it, if, it, if it works out, then it's another great thing, a great tool in our toolbox we could possibly use. 
The problem I feel like at the moment is that the literature is still it's, it's emerging but not quite there yet in some ways. And often when it comes to these new, novel, exciting, cutting-edge things, there's often a demand driven because, particularly in a situation like PTSD and substance use, it's difficult to treat. The treatments we have now, they're really effective, but they're resource-intensive. You need to have weeks and weeks or months and months of treatment. You need to have to buy in to have that treatment in the first place. Our medications take a while. They have their own side effects. Nothing's perfect, unfortunately. There's always this desire to have a quick fix in some ways. I like to keep an open mind about it. If it works and it, I, the theory sort of plans out, then it's great. We have another thing that can, we can use for particularly treatment-resistant PTSD or other conditions would be great in that sort of use. What I often feel gets lost in the discussion, though, when we focus on psychedelics like LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine as well for PTSD in the past is, yes, we're using the psychedelics for certain reasons, but really it's, we're focusing on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So it really has to be paired with good psychotherapy, good sort of approaches of how we're teasing out, again, teasing out the trauma. As I mentioned before, medications of PTSD are very much symptomatic. Um, it's really giving you, setting the stage, giving you that stability so you can address the actual psychological work long term. So I'm all, I'm all for it if it works out, but I think we need a little bit more work on the research on how it helps our, our therapy. Great. That's a, that's a great answer. And I guess that's that's a great place to, to end this uh, pretty detailed episode where we've talked about trauma, PTSD, and essentially the assessment and management options for PTSD. So I'd like to bring this uh, second episode of Dual Diagnosis Corner to, to an end. And please remember to, to like and subscribe to the podcast. Bye for now.